Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for joining me once again. We've got another hour talking about the things that matter most. Uh, Coming up, uh, about 20 minutes from now, we'll have Dr. Marianne Glendon. Uh, She has been with me a number of times before. She's an outstanding guest. She's uh, the Learned Hand Professor of Law Emerita at Harvard University and a former U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See. In 1995, she led the Vatican delegation to Beijing for the U.N.'s World Conference on Women, and she became the first woman ever to lead a Vatican delegation. She's widely published in her own field, and she's recently published in the Courts of Three Popes, an American lawyer and diplomat, in the last absolute monarchy of the West. Now, this is it's a fascinating memoir of her experience working with St. John Paul II, Benedict XVI, Pope Francis, and how a layperson works in a, well, the court. These are almost like monarchical courts. Uh, this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, so we'll find out what she learned, and what she saw. So that's coming up. Also, we're going to be joined by Dr. Aaron Rothstein. He's assistant professor of neurology at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He's noticed something happening in the world of academia after the brutal attack of Hamas on October 7th of last year. Uh, There is actually... a reluctance to hire, promote, commend Jewish academics for fear of uh, offending left-leaning colleagues. We'll go over that story with him. Right now, though, let's get to the headlines. Thanks, Alan. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, February 20th. It's the Feast of Saints Jacinta and Francisco Mardo. Today's news brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation and location is at AveMaria.edu. The U.S. is pushing for a ceasefire in Gaza that includes the release of hostages held by Hamas. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller telling reporters an unconditional pause in fighting that doesn't include the release of hostages only benefits Hamas. They're going to continue to hold hostages. They're going to continue to launch attacks against Israel. They may not do it for a week or so, but they have not forsworn their aims to destroy the state of Israel. This comes after the U.S. today vetoed a third time a U.N. Security Council resolution. The U.S. is instead circulating its own resolution, tying a pause in fighting to the release of the remaining hostages. The Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen human embryos constitute children under state statute a decision that could have wide-reaching effects on in vitro fertilization. The court ruling 8-1 to that the state's wrongful death of a minor act extends to children regardless of their location. 
The state high court's ruling came following a lawsuit brought by several parents whose frozen embryos had been accidentally destroyed at a fertility clinic. Police in Kansas City are announcing charges in the Super Bowl parade shooting. We seek to hold every shooter accountable for their actions on that day. Every single one. Jackson County Prosecutor John Peters Baker said two adults in the shooting have been charged with murder. One person died in the shooting and 22 people were hurt. Taking antidepressants like Prozac while pregnant can hinder a child's brain development and possibly cause mental disorders later in life. That's the findings in a new study published last week in the journal Nature Communications. Experts say antidepressants that raise serotonin levels can influence how the brain learns and adjusts. From your Avi Maria Radio News Desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Aaron Rothstein, Assistant Professor of Neurology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a Fellow in Bioethics and American Democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He also hosts the podcast, Searching for Medicine Soul. He uh, visited Israel in January on an academic solidarity mission, which we'll talk about. And uh, Dr. Rothstein, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So you went to Israel uh, in January on this academic solidarity mission. For those of us who are uninitiated, what is that? Sure. It was. Um, it, it sort of happened after a lot of the events on university campuses uh, in kind of late fall, um, where there were protests against Israel, a lot of um, academics and some even university presidents, um, who seemed to be unwilling to um, take a stand for Israel. Right. Uh, and I think a lot of Israeli academics and um, Israelis, frankly, felt a bit isolated uh, because of this. And so as a show of our support, um, a group of faculty, and this is separate from the, the university itself, although we were all faculty at the university, got together and said we, um, you know, we need to go and, and show our support for our colleagues overseas. And um, and during the course of your time there, uh, what was the conversation like? Yeah, you know, it was a it was a very intense trip. Um, we met with uh, academics at Tel Aviv University, uh, Hebrew University, um, Ben Gurion University, uh, and we saw some of the sites of the the massacres of October seventh. Uh, and and our conversations with our you know, overseas colleagues kind of. Um, were were upsetting. Uh, many of them pointed out that there seemed to be fewer invitations to collaborate on research projects, fewer invitations to kind of lecture abroad. There was a fear of um, fewer invitations to have some of Israeli graduate students study abroad as postdocs. Um, you know, have having journals kind of turn down articles. Yeah. Uh, that submitted by Israeli academics. So, you know, a, a bit of a what I call in in um, a recent piece I wrote for a public discourse a covert academic boycott. Yeah, and and this uh, promotion in academia requires, uh, you know, letters of recommendation from faculty members uh, at other institutions who don't know the applicant personally but know of his or her work. 
Um, it requires, uh, you know, having opportunity uh, to cooperate with researchers all over the world. So this uh, this covert uh, uh, boycott uh, of Israeli scholarship uh, is is dangerous. I mean, it 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 involves losing. Um, promotion in careers. Correct. It is anti-intellectual in my mind. Yeah. Uh, and it stymies the careers of uh, young Israeli academics. And, you know, who knows what kind of discoveries they'll make or advancements they'll make in their various fields, um, but for this kind of uh, discrimination. Um, so how concrete were the instances of discrimination that you came across the the concreteness is difficult to tell um, because this these kinds of invitations can you know wax and wane over time sure and so I think I think we will all probably have a much better sense of things over the coming year but already um, many higher-ups in universities have pointed out that, um, that there are quantitative metrics that show uh, changes. So the chances of young Israeli academics being accepted to institutions internationally for a postdoc program have declined by a double-digit percentage. Now, that's, like, that's very unusual. So, uh, so there are certainly signs that what is covert or being unsaid is having consequences. Um. You write that in November, 939 Nordic researchers and academic staff called for a boycott of Israeli academic institutions, uh, with exceptions made only for individual Israeli scholars who explicitly condemned the war in Gaza. Uh, that that's that is awfully blatant. I totally agree. I, I, so I think this is both covert and overt. And the, the explicit stuff, which is the, the event that you just mentioned, that is, I mean, it's tale as old as time uh, in Israeli academia. This has been going on throughout the 2000s. Um, you know, it seems whenever there is conflict uh, in the Middle East that involves Israel, there is always a push by European or American um, academics to explicitly refuse to work with, with Israelis. Uh, and again, I think this is anti-intellectual, it's anti-Semitic, um, it is discriminating against a group of scholars based on their nationality or their, even their political opinions, which is um, uh, a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, there's certainly on college campuses in the United States, uh, there's a lot of disgraceful behavior uh, following uh, the Israeli Defense Forces' response to the uh, massacre of October 6th. And um, and we didn't see a whole lot of uh, uh, courage on the part of uh, university and college presidents uh, standing in the gap here. How, here we have, how politically left, uh, this is a big question, I know there are lots of ways of getting at this, but how politically left is American American academia? 
So that is a hard question to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's—I I don't think it's what it seems, uh, because I think there are a lot of people who see what's going on and don't agree with it. it it's just that the loudest, loudest voices seem to have the most uh, control yeah. or seem to get the most attention. And so I, you know, while I'm um, disheartened by everything that's been going on, I, I'm also encouraged, again, by the fact that, uh, that here at Penn, um, this group of academics got together to, to go to Israel, you know, um, that, that's a, a good thing. Yeah, I, that, yeah, indeed. That took some effort, and it took a willingness to basically uh, be counted. Uh, I think that that's wonderful. Um, you mentioned uh, in 2009, during a previous war in Gaza, a group of American professors called for an academic boycott of Israel. How often do these things come up? Uh, they come up regularly whether there's conflict or even whether there's not actually i there's um uh, this past summer there was a um uh, a group uh, called the American Anthropological Association mm-hmm. uh that argued that the Israeli state operates an apartheid regime from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea which for those who don't uh, aren't totally familiar with the ge- geography is basically the entire state of Israel right right uh, so, you know, it, it uh, it's, it's baffling, but this stuff comes up um, on the regular, unfortunately. I, I mean, it doesn't take it doesn't take a lot of work to read the original Hamas charter or the revision, and to know that Hamas's intention uh, is not peaceful coexistence, but it is the elimination of the state of Israel. Um, why is it so difficult for people to just acknowledge that? Boy, that is a, <laughs> that is a loaded question. And I think, I think there is a lot of groundwork that has been laid for this kind of perspective to take root and flourish. Um, and I think some of it involves the, um, like the the movement of postmodernism that insisted that you know there wasn't really uh, truth like we truth just didn't exist there's mm-hmm. no objective truth and that essentially it was oppressor versus oppressed yeah and the yeah. Uh, oppressed are always in the right and somehow the Jewish people became the oppressors in this yeah. narrative in this postmodernist narrative um, uh, and I think. You know, usually the job of the academic or the intellectual is to say things are a bit more complicated than that, <laughs> right. and there's and there's nuance here. Yeah. And but there are times when it is very clear what is right and what is wrong, and postmodernism has totally distorted our ability to see right and wrong. Uh, and I think that's what's going on here. It's a bit of a sloppy way of explaining it, but so, I, I do think that's what's happening. So having lost the confidence that anyone can actually establish right from wrong or truth from falsehood, they've simply slid into the council, under the Council of Despair, where now it is um, the person who has the power 
um, is the one who is the oppressor, and therefore, by definition, is somebody that must be uh, uh, resisted. And the oppressed are always the ones who deserve uh, support. And questions of history, questions of um, uh, political philosophy uh, are meaningless. The only thing that counts is this person is labeled oppressed and this person is labeled oppressor. That covers good and evil and it covers truth and falsity. and the, the, the odd thing is that with that kind of mindset, what ends up happening is the most powerful people end up prevailing anyways. It's, it's disgraceful. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think that's right. So when I, when, I, when, I, when I hear this kind of thing, it is, it, it is terribly frustrating um, to, to, again, think that... I mean, it was... The Hamas people treat the conflict between um, Israel and Hamas as though it's it's just a, a neighborly dispute. So I, you know, I have a dispute with my neighbor. Um, we have a dispute over where the fence ought to be placed, um, and what we'll have to do is we'll have to argue it out. We'll have to call in outsiders. But that isn't the nature of the relationship between Hamas and Israel. Hamas doesn't come as a neighbor seeking to settle a dispute. They're the neighbor who says, you don't deserve to exist at all. And I won't be satisfied until you're abolished. That's how I see it. And um, thank you for the time, and I hope we can talk about this in the future. Absolutely, I'd love that. Thanks for having Join Father John Hedges for 5 p.m. Mass at Our Lady of Fatima Shrine in Riverview, Tuesday, February 20th, the feast day of Saints Jacinta and Francisco. Receive a plenary indulgence under church guidelines. Fellowship follows the Mass. Call 313-320-7887 or visit FatimaShrineDetroit.org. That's 313-320-7887 or visit FatimaShrineDetroit.org. Resetting your password, unsubscribing from emails, printing anything. Why are simple things sometimes so complicated? Thankfully, with an auto owner's insurance independent agent, getting the right coverage for your business doesn't have to be one of them. So you can get back to more important things, like learning how that printer works. That's simple human sense. Call Choice Insurance Agency at 734-641-4200. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. Within the sixth rule of St. Ignatius of Loyola's 14 rules for the discernment of spirits, St. Ignatius of Loyola highlights the need for prayer when we are experiencing spiritual desolation. St. Ignatius invites us to change ourselves intensely against the desolation itself as by insisting more upon prayer. Prayer is the first step in resisting spiritual desolation. In the interior storm of spiritual desolation, this first step when one is perhaps feeling separated from their Lord and Creator, will often need to be done with intention. This very important and decisive step can become a turning point in rejecting spiritual desolation. Father Jules Toner wrote, The first and most essential step in changing ourselves with the hope of conquering desolation is prayer. In this context, prayer of petition. 
What might be your prayer petition during spiritual desolation? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Want a simple way your family can share Christ's love with someone today? Practice the ministry of kindness. Kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's an outward sign that the Holy Spirit is alive in our hearts. So when your family goes out to dinner, or runs errands, or goes out for any reason, remind each other that your mission is to leave everyone you meet a little bit happier than you found them. Be sure to speak politely to the server at the restaurant. Smile at the people in the store. Let someone go ahead of you. Remind your kids to hold the door for others instead of running them over. Look for little ways you can give others a little hug from God through your loving witness. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, uh, Dr. Marianne Glendon, has had a long career as a lawyer, um, uh, professor at Harvard University. Um, She's worked closely, though, with the Vatican under three different popes. She was a Vatican representative uh, to a U.N. conference on women under John Paul II. She was U.S. ambassador to the Vatican while Benedict XVI was pope. And then she was named by Pope Francis as a member of the Pontifical Commission of Inquiry into the Vatican Bank. And uh, that only teases the stories that she has. She has recently given us In the Courts of Three Popes, an American lawyer and diplomat in the last absolute monarchy of the West. Marianne, good to have you back here. Thank you. Thank you for this invitation, Al. It's good to hear your voice. Well, this is, there's so many ways of getting into this, and I think what I'll do is just say, uh, quote you from uh, the early pages of the book, where you say, even today, with 24 years of service to the Holy See behind me, I remain an outsider looking in. Let's start with that. Tell me. Why is I it? wanted to be careful to make clear from the beginning that this wasn't a book from an insider uh, 
somebody uh, telling tales about what goes on in the dark corridors <laughs> of the Vatican. Yeah, right. I, and and I truly, I you know, the fact is, El, an insider, a true insider in the Vatican court couldn't have written this book. Uh, I was an outsider for those 24 years with several different vantage points. And I, because I was in so many different areas and capacities, I think I had the kind of view that an outsider has that an insider can never have. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's take one, and that is that um, the papacy is often described as the last absolute monarchy of the West. Uh, you're an American, and Americans don't do kings very well. <laughs> <laughs> no, we got rid of one once. <laughs> right. So, I mean, what is it? There's got to be a, um, you know, a real difference of culture um, in, re, you know, how you relate to the Holy See uh, than how you would you relate. You put your finger right on it when you use the word culture. Uh, someone said to me many years ago when I first started working in various capacities for the Holy See, you cannot understand the Vatican unless you understand it as a court. And what that means is um, it's an entity with trying to operate in the modern world, but retaining many of the features of a medieval court and um, a very distinctive internal culture. And as a lawyer and person interested in law and government, I really wanted to explore how that, uh, in my view, impeded and continues to impede the Holy See from being as effective as it ought to be in its mission, which is bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Would the what is what do you make of the pontifical secret? Uh, well, I start the book with a, a description of how one of my colleagues. I was present at the ceremony where one of my colleagues was put under the pontifical secret, which is a very solemn oath a person takes um, when they're embarking on some confidential service for the Holy See, and I was listening to them tell my colleague about all the terrible things that would happen in this world and the next if he violated his oath, and it occurred to me, wow, I've been working for the Holy See for 20 years, and nobody's ever put me under the pontifical secret. <laughs> but having said that, you know, I, I think really they, everybody just assumed that that had been done one time or another. But having said that, uh, I certainly do feel bound by confidentiality in many respects. In fact, as a member of the Board of Directors of the Vatican Bank, I was legally under uh, a director's obligations of confidentiality. Okay. So, in that sense, then, the pontifical secret is not different in kind to what we understand as, you know, uh, oaths of confidentiality. I would say so, yes. Okay. Right. Except it's administered in a very solemn way. That's your, yes. It makes more of an impression on you than uh, taking uh, or signing a confidential uh, a confidentiality in- agreement with a secular employer. Uh, let me go to uh, an area, another area where uh, you would be something of an outsider, and that is you're a woman. 
and you led the Vatican delegation to the Beijing conference on uh, women. But I would assume that the the running of the Vatican and the Holy See are pretty much run, it's run by men. Am I wrong? Yes, I sometimes refer to it as a very unusual court because it has many lords and few ladies. <laughs> but uh, if I might say something about you know my reflection on that, I think uh, John Paul II really was attempting to make a huge cultural change in the church in that respect. And you can see that in uh, his writings in this magnificent letter on women, yeah. Mulieris Dignitatum. You can see it in Laborum Exercens on the dignity of work and especially the unpaid work that women do in the home. And I believe that his appointment to me and many other women to high positions during his pontificate, I think he was trying to model for the priesthood and the bishops, I think he was trying to model a different way of relating to women in uh, the period when Vatican II fathers said the hour is coming when women will achieve the position of increasing leadership and position in the world. And he was saying, let's carry through on that now. And in fact, when he sent me to Beijing, he gave me an apostolic letter in which he said, it was supposed to be a letter to my delegation, but part of it was addressed to the church, the men of the church. And he said uh, something like this, I appeal to all men in the church to undergo where necessary a change of heart and to implement as a demand of their faith a positive vision of women. So I think he was really modeling and writing about a change in that respect. Uh, what kind of impact did that have? Uh, well, I think it had a great impact during his pontificate, and I think Benedict gets too little credit for continuing yeah. to try, try to continue to model in that that spirit. But uh, my impression during Benedict's period, actually, he appointed me to the reappointed me to the presidency of the Pontifical Academy, uh, and he uh, was very interested in and respectful of women theologians. I think the problem there was, as we all know now, he was simply overwhelmed with tasks at hand, and yeah. he didn't get a chance to be so aggressive uh, as his predecessor was. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's go to the big question of the laity. Uh, this was... Second Vatican Council declares this is the time of the laity. There's a decree on the laity. Uh, how, from your perspective, how conscious is the Holy See in developing, encouraging the role of the laity? The picture is very mixed. And uh, it was mixed through all the periods of time that I was there. I served on the Council for the Laity, uh, which has now been folded into other councils as an economy measure. And uh, I can't say, given the present dire financial condition of the Holy See, I can't say that uh, I think that's 
a mistake. Okay. Uh, but I, I do think it's regrettable given the importance, especially at this moment when the church is dealing with so many crises. It needs the help of lay people. Lay people can uh, enable the clergy to do the things that they were called by God to do, that they were trained to do, and what they do best. But here's the problem, Al, and I, I really hate to say this, but just as nothing in the training of most priests enables them to run a big financial institution, mm -hmm. um, there's nothing in their backgrounds of most of them that uh, makes them very good at picking qualified lay people to do jobs for them. And in the area of finances, uh, again, it, it makes me sad to say it because I'm a great advocate of lay service to the yeah. church. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book. But the fact is that lay people time and again, uh, and I'm going to say lay men because they were all men, yeah. time and again they were the foxes in the chicken coop where finances are concerned. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, well, well, let me ask you, I mean, it was, uh, Pope, was it, uh, it was Pope Francis who asked you uh, to Pope look Francis into this? Pope Francis put me on a commission, very small commission, where there were five of us, uh, to investigate the financial situation of the Vatican Bank and to make recommendations about whether it should be uh, reformed or closed. And uh, then he put me on the board of directors of the Vatican Bank. And what happens a month after the five or six of us who were appointed directors, uh, within a month after we were appointed, one of the number was on trial for a financial felony in Germany. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was just astonished at that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's, lay people read this kind of thing and they wonder uh, how, how how much uh, financial integrity is there well that is there's a, a wonderful article in the pillar just a couple of days ago about well it looks like we had some sort of technical problem there guys um, let's make sure we move quickly on this and bring uh, dr. Marianne Glendon back with us um, as we're talking about her, her book is called In the Course of Three Popes An American Lawyer and Diplomat in the Last Absolute Monarchy of the West it's an outstanding outstanding book uh, and how, how could it not be uh, this wonderfully intelligent woman who has served the church as a laywoman for um, 20 plus years and had appointments by St. John Paul II Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis, she has seen a lot, and that's what I'm interested in hearing. We'll see what we can do to get her back on the air with us. I'm Al Cresta. No one should ever have to choose between feeding their family and keeping their heat on. Impossible questions like rent or diapers demand answers every day, likely in your very own neighborhood, but you can help. Hope Clinic partners with you to provide free medical, dental, food, and behavioral health care, all in Jesus' name. While others face impossible choices, your choice is an easy one. Partner with Hope Clinic today. Find out how at www.thehopeclinic.org. If you only see the difficulty in parenting, you will never see the treasure. 
Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan are devoted to helping moms see the treasure at every stage of life. Project Hope provides material assistance and guidance. Adoption, foster care, and counseling services are also joyfully offered. Our Walking with Moms in Need initiative provides help and hope at every turn. To get involved or make a financial contribution, visit ccscm.org slash mom. That's ccscm.org slash mom. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. This week on Christ is the Answer, it's the season of Lent, and Father John wants to help us prepare for Easter. It's only been about a week into Lent, but have you stuck to your goals of fasting and prayer? Or have you hit that spiritual roadblock? It's not too late. The church has so many faithful ways for us to traverse this season of penance. So if you need encouragement, join us again this week as Father John helps us get the most out of Lent. Tune in for Christ is the Answer, Monday through Fridays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. Modern philosophers Kierkegaard, Shelley, Sartre proposed the idea that existence precedes essence, by which they meant, in simpler terms, that in the process of time we make or create who and what we are. We understand, of course, that there are those who believe that their doing has been more successful than that of others, and have consequently argued that their being is on a higher state than that of others. This is the kind of thinking that leads to genocide, gas chambers and abortion clinics. However, folks like Barb and Patrick and Paul and Alicia believe that from the beginning human essence is divinely ordered and infinitely valuable, and where else can we state this more clearly than our defense of preborn children who cannot prove themselves or justify themselves? They can only be, which is why they are so precious to one named I Am. Go to Guadalupe Workers. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile. Everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com
And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Marianne Glendon, whose book, In the Courts of Three Popes, has been uh, recently released and um, enjoying it. Before the break, uh, we we lost out about 50 seconds of you, Marianne. We were talking about the Vatican Bank, uh, the Vatican Finances, and whether a lady can count on financial integrity. And uh, you were referring to uh, an article in The Pillar, um, which is titled, What if the Vatican actually goes broke? Written by Ed Condon. And um, it asks the question of how bad is the financial weather over Rome? And it uh, deals uh, years of financial scandals, diminished global offerings have left the Holy See struggling to balance its books in recent years. What did you see when you were involved with the Vatican Bank? What I saw caused me to change my mind pretty dramatically about whether the Vatican right now still needs a bank of its own. I started out with the conviction that the Holy See is a sovereign state, a Mm -hmm. sovereign state has a central bank, and that it was an attribute of sovereignty. Uh, I have completely changed my mind on that, uh, partly because of what we were just discussing, the fact that uh, just as many prelates have uh, have no training to deal with finances at that level, they also have not been able to perform very well in selecting lay people who are competent and honest. Uh, the, so many of the scandals and the continuing scandals in the uh, just completed Vatican trials uh, feature lay people who were not only not good stewards, but were actually involved in activities that were not in the best interest of the Holy See. So uh, uh, what I think now is that back in 1942, when the present Vatican Bank was created, think back to even in the lifetime of uh, you and me and many of your listeners, International transfers of money were extremely difficult. And imagine, 1942, you're in the midst of a war, travel checks had not even been invented, modern methods of electronic transfer had not been invented, heads of orders, religious orders didn't have NBAs. The situation is entirely different now, and I think now probably much of the work done by Vatican financial institutions could be done more safely and competently by outside um, financial institutions. And uh, when I float that idea, people say, oh, yeah, but, you know, those institutions are corrupt and uh, so on. Very simple scheme that Notre Dame University and other universities use. Notre Dame has one of the highest performing uh, asset management systems in American universities, outbeats Harvard, and what they do is they divide up the work among seven or eight investment uh, managers, and at the end of the year, they review the situation and they fire the poorest performer. That keeps <laughs> the others on their toes. Simple. Yeah. Yeah. Simple. So, uh, you know, I do think that's one area where uh, the, it could be cleaned up fairly mm-hmm. easily. You know, and people often claim that change comes hard. Uh, 
to the Roman Curia, but at the same time, I understand the Roman Curia is a pretty well-oiled machine. Um, the members are Catholic, but it's two-thirds Italian. Um, and so they're, they're, they're not expecting, they don't really care who's running the church because they pretty much uh, know how to get along. Is that what you see? Well, look, when I um, say that I think the internal culture has impeded the adjustment of the Holy See to the modern world, it's partly because it's a hangover remnant of medieval culture, Mm -hmm. and it's partly because it's heavily influenced by parts of the surrounding Italian culture from which it draws most of its 5,000 employees. And, you know, what happened with the, the Vatican Bank was... It was easy for uh, some pretty unsavory characters. Yeah. You can see it in Godfather Three, right? Yeah. Uh, it's easy for some unsavory characters to say, "Wow, there's a turkey waiting to be plucked." Yeah. yeah. The people, uh, the cardinals who supervise it, don't really uh, understand everything that we understand. And, uh, you know, the church and, and all of us who have contributed to the church over the years uh, were greatly harmed by that. Yeah. So uh, I've changed my mind completely on that subject. I think that uh, most of what uh, needs to be done could safely and be better perf- uh, performed by uh, delegation to outside agencies. Well, very good to know. Very good to know. Uh uh, what what did you do with um, Pope Benedict? I was president of the uh, Pontifical Academy for Social Sciences, except for the year of uh, 2008 and part of 2009, when I had to resign every single one of my positions in the Vatican because I became the U.S. ambassador to the Vatican. Okay. Yeah. So I had two kinds of relationships with Pope Benedict. Um, one, uh, even before all that happened, of course, he was he's a scholar, and I'm a scholar, and mm-hmm. I was very excited about uh, his becoming Pope, yep. and as president of the Academy, I was very excited because I thought, uh, now I'm going to have somebody on my side to address some of the structural problems within the Academy. But when I spoke to him, uh, both at the time I became ambassador and uh, then later on when I was back as president of the Academy, I spoke to him about the problems I saw and what needed to be done. He was so, I, I felt so sorry for this wonderful scholar and, and wonderful holy man. He just was so overwhelmed by the sexual and financial scandals. He said, just do, just keep on doing whatever you're doing. Well, the thing is, I, I couldn't, within the structures, I was cabined by statutes that yeah. had been put in place and uh, some of the governing laws had to be changed in order to make the thing into a real think tank. Uh, as it stands now, this is another area where I've completely changed my mind. Uh, John Paul II wanted a think tank that would help uh, bring Catholic social teaching up to date yep. in some very important areas. In, like uh, integrate, just, integrate faith and learning. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, a Giordamento in the academic. Uh, but... Um, it just, it wasn't structured so it could work that way, and uh, I think everybody who's listening right now knows that the most important work 
in keeping Catholic social thought up to date is being done in universities around the world by very fine scholars. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say we didn't do good work in the academy, but it never got outside the walls of the academy. Yeah. It's, yeah. So um, that's another area where, in the present time, if the economic situation is as bad as I think it is, and as the pillar says it is, that would be an area where there could be some cost-cutting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, was it very different to be the U.S. ambassador to the Vatican? Uh, how, how, how does that change the hats you wear? Well, uh, I was uh, a real outsider then because I had resigned all of my positions in the Holy See. Yeah. Uh, but it was a wonderful time to be the ambassador because it was a good period in the relationship between the United States and the Holy See. Uh, previously, there had been, as you know, great tension over the invasion of Iraq. Yes. But by the time I got there, the main concern of the Holy See was that the United States should not withdraw because a precipitate would precipitate withdrawal would endanger Christian and other minorities. Yeah. So uh, the Bush administration and and the Holy See Diplomatic Corps were on the same page on practically every issue, and it was a period when there were three visits between John po- between Benedict and George W. Bush. They had a I mean it was an odd couple, but they had a really warm and close relationship. <laughs> No, that's great. That's that's wonderful to hear that. Uh, Is the United? How is the United States um, perceived? For let's say with Pope Francis, for instance, um, if you can, if you can, if you have a good idea. I mean, a lot of people feel that he's had a bias against the United States, born out of his Latin American experience. People speculate all the time. He doesn't seem to understand us. Does that make any sense to you? Well, I think uh, different popes are going to come to that position with uh, their own formation and their their own cultural influences. And uh, you think back about the three popes under whom I served, John Paul II and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, I mean, they overturned... The, the seemingly indestructible totalitarian regimes of Eastern Europe. I mean, it was a <laughs> tremendous period Absolutely. of collaboration. And uh, with Benedict, uh, it, there was that wonderful friendship between Benedict and George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pope Francis comes out of uh, an entirely different background. And, you know, we're all formed by our culture, and I think many things about his um upbringing, his formation, uh, caused him to have uh, a less positive view of El Norte. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, you, you can see that as well. Um, I, want, I wanted to go to a, an issue. You start lead off your chapter, uh, chapter 12, with um, the Pope addressing the diseases of the Curia. I remember this, this Christmas address that he gave where everybody thought it was going to be kind of an innocuous, uh, you know, papal Christmas greetings. And yet the Holy Father listed off, well, you you list 15 
serious criticisms here. That that was amazing. Uh, we're not used to hearing uh, the Pope address uh, members of the Curia in this way. What is that like? I was so excited in that first year of Francis. Uh, first of all, I was excited that uh, there was a Pope from Latin America. I yeah. thought that was a wonderful symbol of the universality of the Catholic Church. Right. And then, as soon as he took office, he took the financial problems in hand in a really spectacular way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really shortly after he was elected that uh, I was on that commission to investigate the bank. Mm-hmm. He uh, called in George Pell from Australia. Uh, and then, that Christmas, he addressed what I consider to be the biggest problem in the Holy See, which is the internal culture. Yeah. Um, I want to say something else about that. We've though. only got about 15 seconds, so go okay. ahead, do what internal you can. Internal culture plus 30 years of relatively light in- administration from John Paul II and Benedict okay. created a good deal of fertile ground for pathologies to develop. And so his critique is really worth uh, giving heed to. Yes, well, it, but it's not enough. Okay. <laughs> Marianne, thank you so much for your years of service for this great book and for joining me today. On the next Epiphany. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, to give you a future and hope. Hi, Vanessa Denhagarmo here, and it's Parish of the Week Wednesday. Father Joseph Jambala joins us from St. Malachi in Sterling Heights. Then we hear from Joe Giordano and Father Sean Kilcoli about the upcoming conference at Father Gabriel Richard High School in Ann Arbor. Epiphany, weekdays at noon on Ave Maria Radio. Food for the Journey, Sister Ann Shield. You know, we would avoid a lot of difficult arguments just spouting off at the mouth, as we sometimes say. Just ask the Lord, give me the words to say. Maybe I'm rightfully angry, but if I just shout and yell and scream, what good is that going to be? Brothers and sisters, God can give us much more control over our anger, over our fear, over our language. And so whenever you're in a tight spot, Just stop for a moment and say, Lord, what would you have me do here? God is good. I don't mean he's going to say words that will come down from heaven. But if you pause just for a moment, you'll get hold of yourself. And you may well get a thought that you didn't have before. And sometimes it's just quiet, but it's enough to bring down the steam. And then you think what is really right to say here. You might be justifiably angry. How do we respect the other person while we're correcting them? Please, brothers and sisters, let us open our hearts to God in those moments. Sister Ann Shields gives you food for the journey, weekday mornings at 645 and again at 1130 on 990 Ave Maria Radio. Well, thank you for being with me. And let me remind you, you can follow up on our conversations 
by going to AveMariaRadio.net. Go to the Crested Guest Archives there. Uh, we'll have follow-up information on my conversation with Dr. Matthew Bunsen about what happened at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and also what looks as though the German bishops blinked uh, and decided not to have that crucial vote on whether they were going to implement a new way of governing the church in Germany. So we'll have follow-up information, again, in the Crested Guest Archives for you. Uh, my conversation with Aaron Rothstein, we'll have his piece available there as well. And then in the online bookstore, Marianne Glennon's book, In the Courts of Three Popes, An American Lawyer and Diplomat in the Last Absolute Monarchy of the West. It is fascinating. Thank you for being with me, and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow on another edition of Crest in the Afternoon. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.